Go ahead and take your Bible, if you have it with you this morning, and go over to the little letter to Philemon. Philemon, and if you don't have a copy of the scriptures with you, um, feel free to use one in the seat back in front of you, and you'll find Philemon um, right on page 1000. So um, it's easy to miss if you're skimming through the New Testament, just a short book. Um, only one shorter in the New Testament is Jude, um, and so we're going to read the whole letter today, and um, that's where we're going to focus our time. As you're turning there, um, have you ever seen one of those um, either quizzes or lists online that says, take this quiz to find out if you're really from such and such a place, like you're really from Utah, or you're really from... Michigan, whatever. Stuff that only people from that state would probably know, right? I came across a list this week that outlined the the primary food or beverage that each state is known for. And I just had to look at it because, you know, you just have to look at it and say, okay, my home state, what are we known for? Um, And there there were some obvious ones, you know, like Maine, lobster, or lobster, um, Pennsylvania cheesesteaks, uh, like the Harrises might take umbrage with that because that's just like the southeast part of, of Pennsylvania. Everybody else is like, we don't, we don't eat cheesesteaks. Um, Michigan, cherries. Yeah, okay, all right. Um, Ohio, Buckeyes. Nobody cares, Paul. Um, New Hampshire cider donuts. That's amazing if that's what it's known for. South Carolina with sweet tea. Oregon versus uns. The first time I went to the South and they were like, do you want sweet or unsweet tea? I was like, what? But I got it now. Uh, Oregon, Marionberry pie. Is that, I'm, I didn't know that was a thing until I saw that. Um, Nebraska is Runza. Have you, anybody had Runza before? It is amazing. And you can only, I think you can only find them in Nebraska. It's like a, it's a, and this sounds gross, but it's like this pocket, this dough pocket, and it's like a cheeseburger inside with cabbage. And you, and you might look at that and go, oh, that sounds awful. It's amazing. I grew up in Colorado where you're trained to hate Nebraska. I don't like Nebraska, but I do like Runza. (laughs) New York, bagels. Okay, but this was the weird one. And my family has only lived in Utah for two years, so we are by far not Utah natives. Utah, it said, was known for... Well, let me, before I say it, what do you think it was known for? Anyone who has lived here longer than 20 years? Or 15, we'll, we'll say 15. What? Fry sauce, wait, who said green jello? Nuh-uh, it was jello. I was like, the things that I've noticed living here, a gazillion children, um, chain restaurants, and fry sauce. So I thought for sure it's fry sauce. Jello. We gotta tick our cuisine up a notch around here. <laughs> The only thing I think of with Jello or green Jello is like what my grandma used to make with like carrot shavings and walnuts in it. Oh, it would come out and you'd go, oh, 
I'm only eating this because this is from you, Grandma. But this is disgusting. We got some work to do on the jello, well, the cuisine front for Utah. Have you ever found it striking that Jesus, when he talked to his disciples, to his followers, he said that their love for each other would be the dead giveaway as to where they were from, so to speak. I find that really striking because it's, and and at the same time, I find it very uh, disconcerting and convicting to me because I just wonder, um, is that the dead giveaway that I follow Jesus? Is that the dead giveaway that this body here, Gospel Hope Church in Riverton, that we follow Jesus? I think if you looked at the um, the general landscape of Western Christianity right now, you'd find a number of things that we're known for. Now, some of them we'd say, yep, we're glad to be known for that. Others we would look at and say, that's a gross mischaracterization, or you maybe you're opposed to us, and so that's why you, you would consider us to be labeled as such. I, th- I thought of a few. We're typically um, labeled with a particular political ideology, um, often viewed as fractured, from like a denominational standpoint. Um, we're, we're viewed as probably stereotypically uh, anti-abortion, pro-life, that you see that all over the place. Um, we've often been viewed as anti-science, uh, socially conservative, maybe. Maybe hypocritical. We get called that a lot. Um, gullible, also get called that a lot. Or angry. We also get called that a lot. And again, we may look at any one of those and say, yeah, we're actually glad we're known as that. I, for one, am glad to be known as someone who is opposed to abortion. I'm happy about that. But not, if you look at the major themes, the major um, considerations that folks have of what Christianity is known for, in Western Christianity at least, I don't think you would find love as a common theme especially our love for each other. And that's tough to swallow. It is. It's easy to look at it and say, well, you just don't understand. You're a non-believer, so you're always going to cast us in a negative light. But if you look at the first century church, number one, Jesus said, by this will all people know that you are my disciples by your love for each other. If you look at the first century church in a Roman context, that is what literally what they were known for. It was downright odd, strange, weird to that context, to that culture, that the believers in it were known for their intense love for each other. It was, it was strange. What is the answer then for our dilemma? Because I think it would be a stretch for us to say, yeah, we're, we're known for that. I don't think so. We can't answer that for the entirety of Western Christianity. We can't do that. What we do is pray for it. That's why we spent time this past Thursday evening praying for revival in our nation, in this nation, and it starts at the house of God. It needs to. But what is the answer for Gospel Hope Church? That, I think, is where we need to spend some time today. Um, And then, secondarily, what does that have to do with church planting? Because that's our focus this month. We'll get to the, the question about church planting later, but where I think we need to spend some time, first of all, is What is the answer to the dilemma that we are not known for our love for each other? And that's where Philemon comes in. 
Let's read the whole letter, because you have to, if you're going to get the entire context. Beginning in verse 1, again on page 1000. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, Charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's easy if you spend time, maybe you're reading through the Bible or you're reading through the New Testament this year. Philemon is a quick book to kind of run through really quickly and then, and then kind of miss the, the, um, the dramatic revolutionary teaching that we can draw from this letter, this very brief letter. Let me give you some context, though, for this before we dig into um, our main focus for this morning. Um, again, this is, there's only one letter shorter in the New Testament. This is written by Paul, as you can see right away in verse 1. He's writing from prison, and um, potentially it's a prison in Ephesus. Um, there's debate over where, which prison Paul is writing it from. The text makes it obvious that he's in prison as he writes this. We just don't know where. Ephesus is quite probably where he wrote this from. And that's about 80 miles from where um, Philemon, presumably a wealthy landowner who's also a believer, who has a church that meets in his house, where he lives. Um, it's about 80 miles inland from Ephesus in what would be modern-day Turkey. Um, and he is, he is writing to 
Philemon about a slave named Onesimus. That, on, that name Onesimus is more, more of like a, like a nickname. Often um, slaves, bond servants in that day would get, um, would get a nickname like this. Onesimus just means useful. Paul kind of does a little play on words in verse 11. Formerly he was useless to you, now he is indeed Onesimus to you and me. He's, uh, he's useful. Um, and, you know, Several uh, slaves would get those types of names um, often in that culture. One brief little aside, let's just take two minutes to talk about this. Um, this obviously brings up the issue of slavery, right? And I think we, we do ourselves a disservice if we kind of gloss over that, um, especially with the blight that we have on our history in the United States of, of slavery. We're still dealing with the, with the ramifications, reaping um, what our country sowed. New Testament or first century um, slavery didn't particularly look like what we're accustomed to in understanding what slavery has looked like in our nation. Um, it's not a matter of one being a demonic institution and one being a good and wise institution. That's not it at all. But in, first, in the first century, slavery was not based on ethnicity. It wasn't based on race. Um, it was more a matter of how things got done. And often it was more of an employer-employee relationship in many cases rather than um, just sheer owning um, uh, manpower to get your work done. Um, and that, that, um, that, that ownership often happened as a result of, of one people group conquering another. Um, but that's how, I mean, we have electricity, we have technology today to get things done. In that culture, um, bond servants were how things got done. And again, that doesn't make it a good thing. <laughs> Not at all. But it does make it different from our conception of it in, in our culture and what, we're, we're, what we know from our history. Um, and many have criticized Paul for not coming out um, with a strictly abolitionist message against slavery, saying, uh, Paul, you kind of tiptoe around this, or maybe you even support it. And I don't think that's the case at all. You read Paul throughout his letters, whenever it comes to, to slavery, I've heard it put this way, he, he is kind of setting a ticking time bomb against slavery because he's dealing it with through a gospel lens. If, if slavery was completely abolished in that particular culture at that time and it was done so immediately, the people who would have hurt the most as a result of that would have been the slaves themselves. They would have had nowhere to live, they would have no jobs, they'd have no source of income at all. And what, um, what if, if that happened immediately? Regardless, it needed to be abolished. It just needed to, be, it needed to be worked out of that culture. What Paul does is he attacks slavery through the gospel and he um, approaches it by speaking about how the gospel fully reshapes how people relate to each other. He's not going after mere abolition. He's going against, he's going for total transformation. And we see that here in this letter. Again, he is writing to Philemon about Onesimus. Onesimus had run away from servitude to Philemon. Something had gone terribly wrong in their relationship um, based on verses 17 to 19. Um, potentially, Onesimus had stolen from, from Philemon and then had run away. In that culture, a slave, a bondservant, would have had a price on his head quite possibly if he would have run away from his master. He could have been killed. But he runs, 
and he runs into Paul. Now, we don't know. Maybe he ran directly to Paul on purpose because he had known him from before. That's not, um, that's not out of the realm of consideration. But either way, he finds himself in a jail cell with Paul. And I'm sure that if you were anybody in a jail cell with Paul, you were going to hear the gospel. <laughs> Paul doesn't waste the opportunity, and God grants fruit. Onesimus comes to faith in Christ. And now... Paul takes a calculated, and in this culture, again, think about it from a cultural standpoint, Paul takes a calculated and dangerous but gospel-driven risk to send Onesimus back to Philemon for reconciliation. That's the setting of this letter. That's where this all comes from. It's kind of like we're listening to one end of a phone call that's happening. We're getting, we're getting a lot of the context, but we're kind of having to piece it together, and that's why I think the context is important. But at the root of this, Paul is doing something very dangerous and risky, but he's doing something that the gospel demands. N.T. Wright says this of this letter. He says, even if we only had the letter to Philemon, if that was the only evidence of first-generation Christianity that we possessed, we would know that something quite dramatic and remarkable had taken place because no one in the ancient world was thinking quite like Paul is thinking here. Nobody in the ancient world was attempting the kind of reconciliation across the biggest culture and class barrier in the ancient world that Paul is attempting here. This little letter, therefore, gives us a window on a whole new world, takes us to the heart of what it might mean to be part of the family of the Messiah. That's what we see in just this little letter here this morning. And really, from a big idea perspective for this text, what this text is showing us is that the Christian gospel radically changes how we relate to each other. The Christian gospel radically changes how we relate to each other. Three questions that we, we, we need to answer then. First of all, how does it come about? Second, where does it come from? And third, what does it look like, or what are the practical effects? So, how does it come about? First of all, as we see in this letter, Paul is drawing out this concept of the necessity of giving up social standing. First of all, we see right away in verse 1, and then we see it again in verse 9, in verse 10, and then in verse 13, Paul joyfully owns his status as a prisoner. This would have also been something that was kind of... unheard of. Nobody, nobody in that culture, and frankly, nobody in our culture is like, yep, <laughs> I'm a jailbird, happy about it, want you all to know. <laughs> Paul says from the very beginning, I'm a prisoner, but I'm a prisoner for Christ. He correctly ties his imprisonment to his ministry for Christ, and for Paul, it's not a liability, and it's not a source of shame. In fact, Paul relishes the social stigma that comes with serving Christ. So right away, he sets the tone for us in this letter that I'm going against culture here. I'm not just working within it. I don't, I'm, what we're, we're not after is just kind of a general, a growing fan base of Jesus. We're going after a brand new kind of people that are characterized by brand new kinds of things that have nothing to do with the current culture. It's not making the current culture better. It's not making the current culture worse. It's completely outside of it. It's its own culture altogether. And he joyfully owns his status as a prisoner for Christ. Second, though, he is pressing on Philemon 
a willingness to accept Onesimus back. And just by virtue of, in that culture particularly, Philemon accepting Onesimus back, Paul is doing something radically against the culture. Paul speaks of, in verse 80, speaks of being bold enough to command Philemon to receive Onesimus back. When he says that, you get this sense that Paul knows the social and cultural gravity of what he's calling on Philemon to do. He's not asking him to do something easy. This would have been, this would have been dramatic. This would have been um, Paul going, oh man, <laughs> this is a tough one to ask. And he says it throughout the letter. He says, I could, I could command you to do this. Verses 8 through 10, verse 14, verse 17, verse 21. You can sense that he's kind of dancing around this a little bit because he knows I'm asking you to do something hard, but he's also drawing out the correct gospel response from Philemon, and that is to accept Onesimus back, and he knows that's going to be really difficult. We'll talk about why in just a second. But then on top of that, in terms of giving up social standing, he's asking um, Philemon, and he himself is doing the same thing. He's risking respect and standing within the community. And that's because he's upsetting the social order. What we never get here is that Paul is saying this is optional. No, it's demanded. But he is also, what we cannot lose here is they're risking something. Philemon, Paul is especially asking Philemon to risk something. In that culture, Philemon would have been well within his rights to to receive Onesimus back, but receive him back with a thorough beating. And he would have been within his rights to kill him. That would have been kind of par for the course. We look at that and go, wow, that's awful. That's harsh. And it is. But in their culture, that's what he would have been well within his rights to do. By receiving and welcoming Onesimus back, Philemon risked social standing and stigma. And with that, I mean, think about it. Philemon would be considering, well, what are the neighbors going to think? And are they going to now be afraid that all of their bond servants are going to try and do the same thing that Onesimus did? Because Onesimus, apparently, there's no consequences for it. This is a big ask. And Paul is starting with, you, if you're going to relate to each other like the gospel demands, it has to start with giving up social standing. Loosening our grips on what those around us in the prevailing culture think about how we relate to each other as followers of Christ. But then on top of that, he's calling on Philemon to exercise sacrificial love. He's not asking Philemon just to like Onesimus again or to just give him his old job back. He's asking Philemon to completely reshape, to see his relationship with Onesimus completely reshaped, and that's going to require sacrificial love. It also requires sacrificial love on the, on the part of Paul, though, too. I mean, think about it. Paul is also taking a calculated risk in sticking his neck out for Onesimus, vouching for him. You see that in verses 17 through 19. He says, I'm gonna, I'll pay for whatever he broke or stole or whatever. Paul is willingly sticking his neck out, and you think about it, have you ever done this for somebody? I mean, maybe just on a very minimal scale, you have a friend or a relative that is maybe without work, and they say, hey, is, is your company hiring? And you kind of go, yeah but I know you, (laughs) and uh, I'm not sure I really want to vouch for you, because if you get in this place, and you start 
um, not doing your job well, maybe you're not good enough, or maybe you just don't have a great work ethic, um, I'm the one who looks bad. Nobody wants to look like a sucker. And Paul is willingly putting himself in that place right now. What if Onesimus blows it again? What if he just goes back, he steals, and he runs away again? Paul looks terrible now. Paul's taking that risk because the gospel drives Paul to take that risk. But then there's also the willingness for Philemon to eat the cost of what Onesimus has done to him. We don't know if he stole or or he's taken anything, but we kind of get that sense from verses 17 to 19. And what Paul is calling on Philemon to do is eat the cost. Forgiveness is never free. It's never free. If, if you have kids or you had kids who were young at one point and they're in the, in the living room playing and they're doing some things they shouldn't and in the process a vase gets b- broken. In our family, it's probably me playing with them and I break the vase, but kids are easier targets, so we're going to use that for this illustration. And you go in and you decide to practice forbearance and forgiveness. And they obviously need to learn a lesson through it, but you say, I forgive you. They're not paying for that vase. If, you, if you're forgiving them, you're eating the cost. You're bearing the brunt of that. Somebody has to in any forgiveness transaction. And that's what Paul is calling on Philemon to do. He's saying the gospel demands not only that you give up your social standing, it also demands that you exercise sacrificial love. But then it's there, there, there is also the willingness to take relational risk. That kind of goes with the, with the other two, but there's a willingness that Paul says the gospel places on us to take relational risk. Think about it just in terms of the three relationships here. Paul for Onesimus. We just kind of talked about this, but on top of Paul maybe potentially looking like a sucker if Onesimus blows it again, just by virtue of making the request that Paul is making, this might be beyond the pale for Philemon. He might look at this and go, Paul, are you serious? You're, you're appealing to me to do this? And again, we look at it and we say, yeah, you should. Because slavery and servitude is wrong from the get-go. You have to look at it from this culture's standpoint. Philemon could look at it and go, you are asking me something that I, I shouldn't have to do, Paul. You don't know what this guy has done to me. So Paul is taking a relational risk. They're obviously close friends. He references that in verses 1 and 2. He talks about their love for each other. Paul has served Philemon and he served with him. And so Paul's taking a great relational risk that he might lose a friend in this process. Onesimus with Philemon. Can you imagine the fear in Onesimus' heart as he approaches Philemon's house with that letter? This wasn't a, me- I mean, think about it. Um, Paul didn't text Philemon. He didn't retweet that Onesimus now is a believer in Christ. And it's like, oh, okay, we're good now. Philemon knows. No, Onesimus has to walk back with the letter in his hand that appeals to Philemon to take Onesimus back. Can you imagine what's going through his mind? Because he's going, I might get killed. He might put me to death. Or at least I might get beaten. And then Philemon with Onesimus. Onesimus has obviously um, wronged Philemon. But the gospel call that Paul is making, the gospel appeal that Paul is making, is not only to receive him back to his old position, but to accept him back as a brother in Christ. Totally against the culture. And we see that in verses 15 and 16. 
For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to, to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. The Christian gospel radically reshaping how we relate to each other comes about through giving up social standing, exercising sacrificial love, and taking relational risk. Have any of us ever done that? Are we in the process of doing that? Are we loosening our grip on what it means to have a strong standing in the general culture? Are we looking for ways to exercise sacrificial love and are we taking relational risk? None of us like to do that because we might look bad in the process. We might be taken advantage of. Before we moved to Utah, we lived in New York. We served in a church in Manhattan. And New York City is obviously known for a lot of homelessness. And, and we would ha- often have folks come through the doors of our church building asking for help. And they were, you know, down on their luck, so to speak. And there was a, one particular uh, guy, he, he, um, he claimed to have come to faith in Christ, and he seemed to be growing. And it was, it was, it was really exciting. Um, But in the background, what we didn't know and we found out later is he was making a number of seriously bad decisions and it led led him to a place where he was homeless. He was on the street. And so we would would try to help him and um, help him get out of that state and and help him, you know, from a spiritual standpoint too because it's just a, a lot of issues going on. And he would maybe kind of gravitate toward that help for a while and then you, he would just go dark. You wouldn't see him again for weeks, months. And then he'd resurface again. Finally, after this had happened for a while, he resurfaces and he starts telling us all of the things that he's been done while, while he's, that he's been doing while he's been homeless. And he's describing things that are downright, either they're downright sinful and, and awful or they were also illegal too. And he, you know, he bragged to me about how he beat some guy up for his backpack. I'm going, no, no, that's, that's not okay. And if I actually was able to have any evidence of that, I'd have to call the police too. Um, and so this is, this is happening. And it got to a place, obviously, where we were calling him to repentance, but he wasn't repenting. And so we had to deliver the news um, to, that, that not only was he, um, we were going to have to obviously remove him from membership at our church, but then also um, we were on the, on the verge of having to call the police. And I think we might have at one point because of what we found out. And I just remember it was a Sunday afternoon while a, like our family meeting is going on, and it was hot, so the windows were open, and, and he came to the church building, and I had to go out and give him this news. And from the hours of about one to five in New York City on Sunday afternoon, that's the one time the city kind of gets quiet. Everybody's kind of chill. Our church building was on Broadway, so there's still a lot of people going by, and I'm standing outside of our building, and just imagine like standing out here with the windows open, and he is screaming at me and cussing me out because he... We had to remove him from membership. And I'm just standing there for a good half hour as it was just (laughs) in my face. It was very odd and everybody's kind of like, what's happening at that church? Um, But I remember thinking like, this guy guy totally worked us over on this. He totally played us. How did I not see this? And I thought, to some degree, I'm a sucker. But now I'm ashamed that I felt that way. Because that's what the gospel calls on us to do. To love people without the guarantee of reciprocity. To open ourselves up to be taken advantage of. And that really goes against our culture. Nobody wants to look like they've been taken advantage of. Nobody wants to look like they got the short end of the stick. But 
That's what the gospel calls us to do. It's how the gospel calls us to respond. Isn't that what Jesus looked like to Satan while he hung on the cross? Part of how Christian love should confound the minds of non-believers is the fact that it isn't contingent on maintaining the social status quo, and it's not driven by the guarantee of reciprocity. That's how this radical reshaping comes about. But then with that, where does it come from? Two thoughts here. One, it comes from our partnership in the king. And we get that from verse 6. In fact, I think the whole letter hinges on verse 6. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Um, The Kingdom New Testament translates it this way, and I think it's really helpful. My prayer is this, that the partnership which goes with your faith may have its powerful effect in realizing every good thing that is at work in us to lead us into the king. The partnership which goes with your faith, or in the ESV, the sharing of your faith, comes from what may be a familiar word to you, the word in in Greek in which Paul originally wrote this, koinonia. You might have heard that that term used. Koinonia can have a variety of meanings or um, a kind of a wide range of of senses to it. It can mean fellowship, it can mean partnership, it can mean even business partnership, or it can mean generosity. But Paul hinges his letter on this concept, that our partnership in the king, in Christ, those terms can be used interchangeably, our partnership in the king is what drives this countercultural response of love for each other. It's what we mutually share together. And what he's saying is, Philemon, if you respond, which I believe you will because we're partners together in the gospel, if you respond like God is demanding you to respond, like I'm appealing for you to respond, if you respond that way, you will understand, you will will plumb new depths of what it means to be in Christ You'll plumb new depths of what it means to know the love of Christ, and that's what I'm praying for. Our placement and our partnership in Christ and the obedience to what that demands of us drives us deeper and deeper into his character and toward his love for others. As we practice this kind of love, as we buck against the culture the cultural norms in which we find ourselves, and we love each other sacrificially, and we give up social standing. As we do this, we plumb new depths over and over and over again of what this partnership actually looks like and what it means. That's what Paul's going after. And this obedience to the king that Paul is referencing, that the king demands, includes a disposition that seeks reconciliation, which is what this whole letter is about. This is the same Paul who wrote over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in verses 17 to 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So our partnership in the king is what drives us to be reconciled to those around us. It drives us to this kind of countercultural love. 
But then second, it's following the king's example. And you see that in verses 17 to 19. And Paul there shows us, let me, let me read it real quick. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Paul writes that with his own hand because often Paul would use somebody else, somebody else would actually pen the letters for him. Paul would dictate under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he would have somebody else write for him. It's like Paul takes the pen and he goes, Philemon, I'm dead serious. If he owes you something and you, you decide that it must be paid back in order for reconciliation to happen, I'll do it. You can see the influence Jesus' forgiveness and reconciliation has had on Paul. You can almost hear Jesus saying those words about you and me. If Nick has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Jesus, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. (laughs) That's what he did on the cross. Just like Jesus, Paul here gives us a glimpse into what the gospel can do, the power of the gospel, what it does for relationships, because he willingly offers himself as a substitute. He willingly offers to pay the price to bring about that reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus. And that example that Paul gives is the one that he's following from Jesus, and it's the same one that the gospel demands of us. Salvation in Christ starts to produce character that is akin to Christ's. And that becomes our identity. It should become our identity because it's really who we are. Because we share in that partnership in the King. This, what is it, next Tuesday, November 3rd. Hopefully we have somewhat of an end to all of the politics. Because I'd really like to hear about something else like COVID. That'd be great. But uh, throughout the evening, you know, uh, all of the news stations will have all of the maps. And early in the evening, it'll be, you know, this state obviously is going blue. This one's obviously going red. That's how they're identified, right? New York, California, you don't even have to, like, have an election or or you don't have to vote there. You just know. Those are blue. Uh, This one over here is red. That's how they're identified. It's just what they're characterized by. Is that how we're characterized? And if we're not, this is a rubric. This is a beautiful example to follow as we go, okay, how, I can't answer this for everybody. How in my neighborhood can we be known for our love for each other? How in my little bank of cubicles at work can I be known for my love for others? How at Gospel Hope Church, and this is where it really hits home, how can we be known for our love for each other? By this will all people know that you are my disciples by your love for each other. Does what we share in the King and the gospel by which we're identified drive you and me to follow Jesus' example of forgiveness, love, gentleness of reconciliation? Or are we quick to hold grudges against each other and we're slow to let them go? We're slow to grant forgiveness? Is that what we're characterized by? Our partnership in Christ should be on obvious display and it's displayed through how we follow Jesus in loving each other and seeking reconciliation. Last question, what are its practical effects? If the Christian gospel 
dramatically, radically changes how we relate to each other. What does it look like? First of all, we see this in verses 1 and 2, 10 through 12, verse 16. I'd encourage you to read through this letter and meditate on it, even this afternoon or in coming weeks. We become family and we become friends. Have you ever thought about that? Often we use terminology, and rightly so, from Scripture. We see it in verses 1 and 2, and then in verses 10 through 12 and 16, that we are family. And that should mean something. It may not mean positive things to you because of maybe what you've experienced in your, in your family. And I want to be sensitive to that. But not only does it demand family of us, it demands that we become friends. Have you ever thought about that? I had a professor once, he said, that there is no place within Christianity for the concept of, I know I have to love my brother or sister in Christ, but I don't have to like them. <laughs> We all know what that means, right? We all chuckle because we're going, yeah, I know I'm supposed to love them, and that can kind of be nebulous. It means I, I smile at them when I see them Sunday morning worship, but I don't really like them because they drive me nuts. What Paul is calling for here is a complete realignment of our relationships, and it makes enemies friends. It doesn't just make us kind of co-adherence to some religion. It doesn't make us um, part of some, fa- some common fandom. Partnership in the gospel drives a different kind of relationship than what any other affinity can produce. Similar tastes in art, uh, sports teams that you like, states that we're from, etc. It's based on a shared understanding of what Je- Jesus has done for each of us, and it's mutually humbling, and it drives a sacrificial love for each other that Jesus showed us. And I think we just, there's not time to think about this thoroughly here. But think about how you can become friends with people here that you maybe don't know yet. You haven't spent the time to get to know. How do we become friends? It's all based on the gospel. It's how, it's how you can go to another country for, for pleasure or for work and you run into a believer you've never met and you'll never see again in this life and there's an immediate kinship there. That doesn't happen just because you both are fans of the... New England Patriots, fill in the blank. Bad, bad example, Matt. Um, it's because you share something, you share a deep, deep realization of the love and forgiveness you've accepted in Jesus and how that, how that is um, brought out in your relationship with that person. And you can't replicate it. There's actually an article I saw last night particularly about this. How can we look at the political divide right now And what's the answer? Well, the answer is deep-seated friendship. Only the Christian gospel can really bring that about. So we become family and we become friends. Second, the social order is turned on its head. Philemon receiving Onesimus back with a beating would have raised eyebrows. Philemon receiving Onesimus back as a friend and a dear brother does not square with that culture at all. But that's exactly what the gospel demands. And that's the beauty of of partnership in the gospel because Jesus is doing something altogether new in this world and in the relationships of people who have trusted in him. Jesus isn't enhancing how we naturally relate to each other. He's not just making us less racist or, or, or uh, less classist. He's not just kind of massaging the political divide so we don't hate each other as much. No, he's completely transforming how we relate to each other. It should look like it is incredibly 
weird and odd to non-believers, to the natural tendency to only love those within our tribes. Right now, in our political environment, it's on stark display. You're in one tribe or the other. You can't be in in between. (laughs) And there's almost no room left for loving each other, and it happens even with believers. Where somebody disagrees with me politically, and so I cannot conceive of how I could love them. That is not the gospel response that, that Paul outlines here in Philemon. We are to represent the opposite of cancel culture because that's what partnership in Christ demands. Finally, people see and experience the tangible effects of reconciliation. Tangible effects. Paul was calling for a stark display of the gospel in Philemon's life, that of his family, his church, and his community. There's a reason Paul addresses the beginning of this letter to not Philemon only. This wasn't for his eyes only. This was a letter that was to be read by the church, with Philemon being the one that was supposed to respond. Can you imagine being Philemon, sitting there going, oh, I guess I know how I'm supposed to respond to this. It was meant, though, for the body of Christ to respond the same way that Paul was calling on Philemon to respond. And that results in sacrificial loving relationships between everybody within Christ's church. Jesus' love displayed through his followers for each other is revolutionary in this world. And our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues, our communities need to see it. It's vital that they see it. So very practically, is there someone in this assembly today to whom you need to express sacrificial and maybe even countercultural love? Maybe it's through a text. Maybe it's through a note that you write. Maybe it's through a phone call. Maybe it's through meeting up for coffee, if you can find any coffee shops that are actually open. Maybe they're way older or way younger than you, and it just, it's like nobody is friends with someone who's, two, someone who's two decades older than them. No. They are in, you are in Christ. That's normal in Christ. That's how it should be. Because it's not that you hold other affinities, but you do hold Jesus, and that is at root um, the partnership that Paul is going after. So, Is there somebody that you're thinking of right now, or you can look across the aisle, don't make it too obvious, and you say, how can I sacrificially love and serve that person this week? On the negative side, is there someone with whom you or I need to be reconciled? Maybe there's been deep-seated animosity, maybe for years, for which you need to repent, and then you need to seek reconciliation with that. And in so doing, you plumb brand new depths of what it means to be in Christ together and you plumb brand new depths of what it means to love like Jesus. The Christian gospel radically changes how we relate to each other, and we are ministers of this reconciliation. And as that's on display, we make evident the distinguishing mark that Jesus talked about our love for each other. I asked the question at the beginning, what does this have to do with church planting? Everything. In whatever community there is currently not a gospel witness, In any community without a local manifestation of Christ's church, non-believers are missing out on the opportunity to see the gospel do its deep work. They're missing that opportunity. Jesus said, by this will all people know that you are my disciples by your love for each other. If they can't see disciples there gathering and loving each other, they're missing out on a very tangible proof that the gospel is real. They're missing out on that opportunity. They're missing out on the opportunity to see how People who shouldn't even like each other become family and become friends. 
and exercise sacrificial love for each other. Jesus said that this would be our mark, and this is how people will know who we follow. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray this, that the partnership which goes with our faith may have its powerful effect in realizing every good thing that is at work in us to lead us into the King. Amen.